Before we jump into this chapter, I thought it might be good that uh, we just pray. You pray for me and I'll pray for the teaching, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now as we open up your word, your word tells us that it's living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that you pierce deep into the very core of our being. And Lord, we pray that today that your word and your spirit come together to speak directly into the place where we need to hear from you. And I pray, God, that right now that you give me the words to say in just the right way, in just the right order, in order to convey your heart and uh, Lord, your agenda. Be with us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, we have been working our way through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi. And uh, as we come to chapter 3, one of the things that every commentary will tell you is that some of the most, this is the chapter that contains some of the most profound uh, theological teaching anywhere in, in the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at that as we go. It's going to be very theological, but it's also going to be very interesting, at least to me. It's going to be interesting. So if you don't have a good time today, I will. The, uh, the big question for me each week is what do you leave in and what do you leave out? And this is one of those teachings where we can only talk about so much. So I'm going to highlight some of the main things as we keep going, hopefully to give you enough of a, of a, a grasp of this chapter that you'll be able to take it to maybe to the next level as you, as you uh, think it through. There on uh, the screen you'll see that there is a map. And uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians in the top left-hand corner from uh, being a prisoner in Rome. And Paul has been a prisoner now for over four years as he writes this letter to, to the Philippian church. And the Philippians, if you go a little bit over to the middle, you'll see it says Macedonia, and you go just below that, you have this town of Philippi. And uh, so that was the town that Paul went to some 11 years earlier and started the church there in this town of Philippi. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that he leads, leaves Philippi and he heads south and he goes down to Thessalonica, then he goes further south to Athens and ultimately winds up in Corinth, spends about 18 months there. But it all began, if you go all the way over to the right-hand side of the screen, you go all the way down to the bottom, you see Jerusalem. Everybody see Jerusalem? Now, uh, Jerusalem is in the part of Israel that's commonly referred to as Judea, and uh, that's the southern part of Israel. And so when Paul began this missionary journey where he goes all over this, this area, uh, if you go north of Jerusalem, you go to this, area, this town called Antioch. That was the first Gentile, completely Gentile church. And uh, was, uh, people, uh, so just thousands of people were actually going to that church. And uh, so then Paul would go north to this area of Galatia. You can see Galatia there. And while he's there, I actually kind of did that backwards to you because it started in Jerusalem, Antioch, and then up towards Galatia. But it was there in Galatia that we talked about how Paul came down with an illness, and that illness was an eye situation where when he would teach, literally his eyes would ooze the entire time. And so because of that, he goes over and God takes him over to Philippi and there. Now, 11 years later, he's there at Rome. That's going to actually be important as we travel through. But Paul, in, um, as, as he is writing this back, 11 years after he has been to Philippi, he's going to talk about two big heresies that were in the church in that day and also today. They're the same heresies. They're 
packaged a little bit different. So there on your outline, it says two heresies. And Paul, again, is writing 11 years after. uh, And uh, he refers to the time when he was in that place of Antioch. And it says that some men came down from Judea, and uh, that is the area where Jerusalem is, to Judea, to Antioch. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And uh, this brought Paul into a sharp dispute. So there's a couple of things in this heresy here. First of all, they had the mentality that you could only be saved through what we're going to call our church. And you want to write that down. You, you, if you weren't saved through the Jerusalem church, you, you, you just weren't saved. And so they're going to show up and they're going to say, in order to be a Christian, you have to become us first. That is, you have to become Jewish first. And the other thing that they did is they added, I want you to write this down, they added rules, rituals, and regulations uh, to being saved. So there's these outward things that you had to do. Yes, Jesus is great, but you have to do these things in order to become a Christian. And the, the big one thing that you had to do to become a Christian in their mind that they added to the gospel was that you had to be circumcised. Now, keep in mind that the Philippian church is not filled with Jewish people. It's filled with Gentile people. And uh, the Antioch church was filled with Gentile people. So this would be a very painful church growth strategy. Can you imagine if God required that to take place? You know, if you were to come to church and and you were to say, Pastor Dan, I want to know Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to have a relationship with him. And I say, you know what? We love you. We're so glad you're here. And uh, we want that for you too. But there's something that you have to do first. We want you to go to the back and see Pastor TJ standing back in the back. (laughs) TJ's back there shining, you know, sharpening his knives, you know. It's kind of awkward too when you go to church, you know, to see if you're really in, you know. You lift that toga, then we'll see what's what. <laughs> see if you can come in here or not. So it was one of those things, but Paul is, is, uh, Paul is going to deal with that heresy in the first part of the chapter. And that heresy is, you know, it can only come through one church, our church, uh, and, and uh, you have to do some things on the external in order for you to be saved. Paul's going to deal with that. Well, later on, there is a second heresy that Paul is going to deal with. And uh, that heresy uh, was very prominent. You know, if if you look over here on the map, you see Philippi, and that's kind of northern Greece. And you go down to Corinth. Corinth is in the center uh, of Greece. And and it's there that you have this mixture of Christianity and philosophy. So one of the things that was beginning to mix with Christianity was philosophy. And one of the philosophies that was really mixing was a philosophy that's called Epicureanism. And so as they mix the two, which, which deals, you know, it, it's, it's okay to, you know, enjoy certain things. And, and uh, I want to be careful of the wording that I use here, but they began to conclude saying, you know, I'm saved. And so when I'm saved, it's my spirit that goes to heaven, but my body doesn't go to heaven. My spirit goes to heaven, but my body doesn't go to heaven. And uh, so it really, they would conclude, with, as they mixed philosophy and, and they mixed uh, Christianity, uh, they began to conclude that since my spirit goes to heaven, but this body doesn't go to heaven, then it really doesn't matter what I do in this body uh, because my body's not going to heaven. So they came up with a mantra, a phrase. And their phrase was, everything is permissible. 
Everything is permissible. And so Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth as they embrace this, and uh, if you've if you've gone through the book of Corinthians, you'll see that they were very much troubled with things like immorality and sleeping at one point with prostitutes, getting drunk at church. And, and so when Paul writes to them, he takes their mantra, and I put it there in your outline, he says, everything is permissible for me. Then he says, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, it was true that you were saved and your body that we have here does not go to heaven. Your spirit does. But the idea is that when we were saved, it was the Holy Spirit who came to dwell within us. And so when the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us, uh, the response would be that we'd want to live lives that are holy before the Lord. And they had greatly missed that. So Paul's going to deal with that heresy in the second part of this chapter, and we're going to look at that next week. So the church in Philippi is a church that's going through suffering, they're doing great, they're following the Lord, but Paul says, but I still want to remind you because these things can creep in. These were the voices that were creeping into the church in those days, and I think you'll agree that there are many voices today that, that seek to creep into the church. And uh, so Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And I've underlined a safeguard for you. Paul says there's just some things we need to go over again. And and even though I was there 11 years ago, I've certainly been there uh, during the past 11 years, but I want to make sure, I want to go over it again so that these things don't creep in to your thinking. So verses 2 and 3. He says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the, my translation says, the false circumcision. And he says, for we are the true circumcision who worship, and we worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's a couple of things. First of all, there in verse, in verse two, the first word is beware. Does your Bible have the word beware? So this is a warning. Paul says, you need to be very careful about this. Now, the reason I told you about the heresies that were creeping in is because uh, if we just read this and we didn't have any background, we wouldn't know what Paul's talking about when he says, beware of the dogs, uh, beware of the false circumcision. Some of your Bibles will say the mutilation. Uh, And uh, so that's why we, we did that. So he says, beware of the dogs. Now, what Paul is doing here in those days, and if you've read through the Gospels, you'll know that religious Jewish people referred to Gentiles, that's us, for the most part as dogs. It was a derogatory term. Now, the, the reason they used that term is that in Israel 2,000 years ago, dogs were not pets. Dogs were just pack animals. So Jewish people didn't have dogs as, as pets. And so uh, dogs were considered just dangerous pack animals, and you did not want to run into a a pack of dogs uh, back in Israel in that time because they would be very dangerous. So Jewish people, Jewish people referred to Gentiles as these kind of like this dangerous pack of dogs. So Paul takes their term that they would say about Gentiles and just refers it back to them. It's kind of an insult back to uh, back to these people who are saying you have to be circumcised and become Jewish in order to be saved. 
Then also you notice in verse 2, it says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, my translation says, evil workers. They held that in order for you to get saved, there were certain things, am I out of time? They held that there were certain things that you had to do in order to be saved, and there were certain things that you had to do in order to maintain your salvation. So they were into works. Paul refers to them as evil workers. He doesn't say, you know, they're awful a little bit as they hold that you have to do these things to get saved, or they're awful a little bit saying that you have to do these things to maintain your salvation. He says they are evil. They are evil workers, but they are coming into the church. And so Paul's point in this chapter is going to be, don't add anything to just the the faith in Jesus. So here, uh, if we were to, to expound upon what Paul is saying when he calls them evil workers, there are certain things that we do because we are saved. But they're not things that we do to get saved. So today, as as we shared, 30 people have signed up to be baptized. They are being baptized because they are saved, and uh, they are going to express their commitment to Jesus through baptism. They are not saved because they have... because they're not baptized to get salvation. They're being baptized because they are saved. Does that make sense? So uh, there are those that would say, well, you can't be saved unless you you go and you have communion. Well, they're saying they're adding something to that. We take communion because we are saved. So when you do these things because you are saved, that's the gospel. When you do these things, the external things that these ones that were called Judaizers would come in and say you have to do to be saved, that would be heresy in Paul's mind. He's going to take this chapter and lay that out. It's heresy because they begin to look at the things that they did and say, I'm saved because I did this. So to attach anything to faith in Jesus, Paul is going to teach us, uh, it's not just off, it's not just off, but it's not just a different perspective, but Paul would say it's evil, evil, evil workers. So, and of course, their big thing was circumcision. Uh, That verse there I put there on your outline, Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of, and it says the false circumcision. And uh, some of your Bibles will not say circumcision there, it'll use another word like mutilation, but that word there is katatomi. Does everybody see that? Now that's important because he, would then, he go, then goes on and says, but we are the true circumcision, and that word is paratomy. And so there's two different words, even though some of your Bibles will say false circumcision. Uh, what, what I love about this is that word katatome is not the word for circumcision. There in your outline it means a cutting down or cutting off or mutilation. Fun with Greek words. So the idea is Paul doesn't refer to them as those who are off just a little bit who are adding. He says they're just mutilators of the body as they say you have to be circumcised is the the idea. Does that make sense? Did it put you to sleep? Is that the most awkward thing ever? If you're going, what is circumcision? I'm just going to say, well, look it up. But then Paul says in verse 3, there in your Bible, he says, for we are, in my translation, it says the true circumcision, here's how we know, who worship in the Spirit of God 
and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. So the, the characteristic of, of true circumcision is that we're not going to point to those other things. We're going to point to these things. First of all, uh, true circumcision, he would say, would be those who worship in the Spirit, not by a list. When you come to Jesus, you, you meet Him, and your worship has nothing to do with the things that you do. You might do some things because uh, He might call you to, but you're not right with God because you do those things. You're not saved because you do those things. Uh, he would say that true circumcision uh, is, is uh, manifested by those who only boast about what Jesus did for me. You want to write that down? What Jesus did for me. And uh, that word there, in verse 3, he says, we glory in Christ Jesus. The, the word there, glory or rejoice, in some of our Bibles, uh, I won't try to pronounce the word there, but I did put it on your outline, is the word to boast. So those who are truly believers in Jesus do not boast in the sense that they, they can't say, well, well, I was baptized, I was confirmed, or in their case back then, I was circumcised. They can only boast, and this is what Jesus did for me. And they don't add, well, here's what I did. That's never attached to it. And so it says, uh, the next thing is we put no confidence in what I did. You want to write that down. No confidence in the flesh. So again, uh, you meet people and you'll say, so what's your relationship with the Lord? And they go, well, I was baptized. Or they'll say, you know, I went through communion, I was confirmed. Uh, well, they'll say, well, I led a good life, you know, I've, I've done good things, um, I'm a good person. And, uh, but for the true believer, the true believer can only say, I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me. I put no confidence in any of those other things. In the Bible, Christians put their trust completely in what it is that Jesus has done for us. Here, the ones that would be called the evil workers, the dogs, the, the Judaizers and other places, they would say, yes, it's Jesus, but it's also this. God does his part in your salvation, but then you got to do your part. And if you can ever point to your part, Paul would say we don't put any confidence in anything that we do. Our boast is in completely what it is that Jesus has done for us. So those, those things are not uh, to trust in Jesus and to trust in anything that I've done, pointing to baptism, communion, or whatever it might be, is to trust in Jesus, but it's also to trust in something else. And that's not a safe foundation. They're actually mutually, uh, mutually exclusive. So you say, what is it, what is it that you know, these things of the flesh that Paul says that we can't trust in, uh, that we can put no confidence in? Well, Paul says, let me, let me give you the example of what this is. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4. And he says, although, so we don't trust, we don't put no confidence in the flesh, last line of verse 3, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. And if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I mean, if anybody can do it, I can do it, he says. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just according to the, the, the Jewish law. I'm of the nation of Israel. I was part of the right group of people. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin means son of my right hand. He was the favored son of Jacob. So their 
tribe, you might say, had special status. Uh, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he's saying is, is that we never embraced anything else. Even though we lived in a Greek culture, I'm a Roman citizen, I never embraced any of that other stuff. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I didn't vary in any way. As to the law of Pharisee, the word Pharisee just means separate, and uh, they were like, you know, we keep the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and we'll talk about that. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss, underline the word loss, for, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. So, Couple, a few. There, there's more. I'm just going to give three things that Paul highlights here, and, and there's more. And if, if you think these things through, you'll come up with more. But there's three things that Paul highlights that that were really of no value. There were no value. And uh, one of the things that we find is that you want to write this down. Uh, the answer wasn't found in being sincere. Write that down. Uh, concerning zeal, Paul would say there in verse six. I put it on your outline persecuting the church. You know, the thing about, about Paul is he was so sincere, he was willing to do anything. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere? Well, Paul was absolutely sincere in his beliefs and what he was doing, but he was sincerely wrong. And if he didn't have that experience with Jesus, he would have wound up in a very bad place because there is no trust or there's no help in being sincere. Uh, The answer we'll find wasn't in keeping religious rules. Write that down. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were very good at keeping religious laws. They went out of their way. Each group has its own list of things that they would hold, make you spiritual or not spiritual. If you come from a background like I do, in our background, it was no dancing, drinking, smoking, playing girls, uh, playing cards. Uh, <laughs> that too. <laughs> Not going to movies, you know, and I have in my notes no drinking, no smoking, dancing, or chewing, and not dating girls who do. But anyway, so, so, so there are times when, as a believer, you might want to have some standards in your life, but those things don't make you saved or unsaved. Uh, You're not saved because, you know, you don't dance, drink, or smoke. You're saved because of what Jesus has done for you. But if you're like me, I come from a background where we looked at other people and we evaluated where we thought they were based upon this list that we kept, religious rules. Am I the only one who comes from a background like that? There are two others. I see how hands are going. For those of you listening online, thousands of hands are going up all over the auditorium. So, so it's, it wasn't in keeping religious rules. He realized that that wasn't it. Well, it also found, he also found that the answer was not in being a good person. It wasn't in being a good person. He says, you know, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I was blameless. So when you read through the Old Testament law and it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, I did that. I love my neighbor. You know, if your neighbor's in need, you show up. If there are oxes in the ditch, you take care of that. I was blameless in those things. I went out of my way to do that. But then he came to realize that that wasn't the answer because that's pointing to what he did as opposed to what Jesus did. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, you know, really, 
I believe that when you get to heaven, there's like this scale, you know, and God takes your good works and your bad works and puts them in. If your good works outweigh your bad works, you go to heaven. Well, Paul says it has nothing to do with that. He says, because I did that. I did that. And uh, I realized that there's, you know, it, it was of absolutely no value. So how far does that go? Well, verse seven, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, some of your Bibles might say profitable uh, to me, those things I have counted as loss. And you want to underline uh, loss for the sake of the gospel. Now, this, as he concludes this, I want to go Charles Stanley on you here. Don't miss this. If you've ever heard him, Charles Stanley goes, don't miss this, don't miss this, don't miss this. He says, I put it on your outline, these things I have counted loss, and uh, that word there in the Greek is zemia, is the way it's pronounced, for the sake of Christ. The word loss, we translate it as loss in English. But the word says through the idea of violence, it means detriment. Underline that word detriment. It means damage, and of course it can mean loss. But that's not the first way that it's translated. The first way is detriment. And so when he says all of these things, I I don't count them loss in the sense that they're useless, he says, what I came to realize, and write this down, Paul says, I used to see those things as a profit or gain, but now I realize that those things are actually a detriment to knowing Jesus. They're actually a detriment. So when somebody says, you know, I'm a good person, I think when you get to heaven there's like this scale, and they believe that it's not just useless, it's a detriment. It's a barrier that keeps them from going to heaven because they're placing their trust in something that they did. When you you say to somebody, you say, well, what's your relationship with the Lord? And they say, well, I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Methodist. Uh, They point to their church. Well, that becomes a detriment to knowing Jesus because they're pointing to an institution not to Jesus. Paul says, "I, I was. I was Jewish. I was a Benjamite. All of that it's a detriment. It was a barrier for me actually knowing Jesus. Well, so those things become a barrier. So Paul says, so let me explain it. Let me explain it. In verses 8 through 11, Paul gives uh, one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. I just, just for fun, as you go through these verses, just notice that at each end of each verse there's a comma but no period. And because this is in the original language, it's, it's just one run-on sentence. In theological circles, when they debate authorship, one of the ways that they determine that Paul was the author is that he is the king of run-on sentences. So this sentence is going to be like forever long. So uh, just watch the punctuation as we go through it. He says, more than that, I count all things, not just those few things that we mentioned, all things, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and I've underlined that, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. How many of your Bibles say rubbish? How many of your Bibles say refuse? How many of your Bibles say dung? Good, we'll talk about that in a minute. He says, rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Now, we'll we'll talk about that. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own 
derived from the law. I've underlined my own, derived from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. Underline faith in Christ. Now, I want you to notice the double emphasis here in faith in Christ. By the way, we've, we've not even looked at the punctuation. I want to do that. Can I go back and start over? What are you going to say? Let's do it. Verse, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, comma, and count them to be rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Do you have a comma at the end of that verse? All right, let's go on. Sentence isn't over. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, comma, but that there, but which is through faith in Christ, comma, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You got a comma there too? Yeah? You, who's got a Who's got a period? You throw that Bible away. You got a period? You, you're still reading that New Living Translation, aren't you? <laughs> In the original language, this is a run-on sentence. Okay, so most Bibles pick it. Verse 10, that I may know him, underline the word know, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And that's a colon there, semicolon. Uh, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead, period. There you go. Is that the best run-on sentence you ever read? That's how you know it's Paul. So uh, that's why I put one, one long run-on sentence in Greek so you can look at that later. So a couple of things. Paul says, let, let me explain how these things are of no value and, and put some truth to it. He says um, there on your outline in verse 8, if, let me just read verse 8. He says, more than that, more than that, those things that are of no value that are lost. I count all things to be lost uh, or detriment uh, to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. So there on your outline, verse 8, that one phrase, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, and you want to write this down, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But there was, when you read this, there was something about knowing Jesus that he didn't just say, I want Jesus to be my savior. I want Jesus to be my friend. There was something about knowing Jesus that he called Jesus, Jesus Christ, my Lord. Did you see that? Now, knowing Jesus as your Savior and knowing Jesus as your Lord are two very different things. Both are good. Both are good. When you say, I know we live in a generation um, where we say, um, I know Jesus but when the rubber hits the road, I'm still in charge. I decide if I'm going to follow what he says. When you say, Lord, what you're saying is that he is in charge. So I do what he says because he says it because I know him. And because I know him, there's something about knowing him that says, I gladly put you in charge. Uh, We live in a church culture that says, I believe in Jesus but I'm in charge. Thank you very much. There might be a disconnect about what we know about him. See how it goes. So Paul says, you know, once, once I met Jesus, all those other things were a loss. And, and they actually became a 
detriment, a detriment. And verse 8, he says, let me tell you how much of a detriment they are. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Now, uh, there on your outline, he says, he says, and do count them but dung that I might that I may win Christ. Does everybody see that? So here's what you need to know. The Bible is not a polite book in the original language written to polite people. The Bible is very graphic at times in its description. However, when it's translated into another language, because we are polite people, um, if they were to actually translate that in what Paul's really saying, it would we'd have a hard time getting beyond what he's saying. So the King James Version politely translates that as dung. Isn't that fun? You should see the Old Testament. So anyways, but here's what he's saying. Those things, not only are they a detriment, not only are they worthless, but now when I look at them, I see them, they stink to me. And that's the idea. So I want you to write down that, that the things lost are dung, but not only is worthless, but they're offensive. When I see the things that I used to trust in, he would say, they stink to me now because they had no value and they were a detriment to actually knowing Jesus. So then he says, if you're going to gain Christ, verse 8, he says, he says, I count those things as dung that I might gain Christ or that I might win Christ, uh, the, the idea is that if you're going to have Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, you cannot point to anything else that you've ever trusted in. Your sincerity, your good works, your religious background. And, and to do that, Paul says, I had to come to the place where I realized those things are nothing but dung, they stink, they're offensive, and had to give those things up so that I might gain Christ. Because you can't have both. It's either Jesus and Jesus alone or the stuff that Paul calls as dung. Does that make sense? Well, verse 9, he says, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. And uh, we notice the double uh, emphasis on faith, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So here, Paul is emphasizing that our righteousness, our being right with God, comes through faith in Jesus alone. And you want to write that down. So when somebody says, well, you have to be baptized, you have to be confirmed, you have to take communion, you have to go through this class, you have to only go through this church, that is not, Paul is attacking that belief system. It's from coming to Jesus and Jesus alone. So um, he's, he's emphasizing faith so we couldn't say faith and works. We never do works of anything before or after to be saved or to stay saved. We might live our lives in a certain way because we are and we want to please Jesus, but those things don't make us saved. Well, verse 10, he says that I, might, that I may know, underline the word know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. 
verse 11, in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. So here, write this down. Paul's greatest desire was knowing Jesus as Lord. And there in verse 10, we underline that word know. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That word there, know, is the word gnosko. Did I put that verse on your outline, by the way? I did? Okay. Um, but that word know is gnosko. And here's what it means. It means to know by interaction and experience. When we know him, because we have experienced him, it changes everything. Everything. It's, it's not just a knowledge where we, we, we've read some things. So here, here's where, where um, sadly, much of modern Christianity finds itself. And we have to make sure that we're not there finds itself in the sense that we know Jesus in the sense or in the way we would know Abraham Lincoln. You know, we've read some books about him, we think well of him, we think he's positive, we like what he did, like what he accomplished, but do we know Abraham Lincoln personally? You say, well, no, we don't know him personally. Well, knowing about him doesn't change us. But here, when we know him, gnosko, by experience, Something happens. Something happens inside of us. And what takes place, he says in verse 10, that I might know him, experience him, and he says, and the power of his resurrection. That's not in eternity, that's here. We experience his power in our lives when we know him, not like we know Abraham Lincoln, but when we experience him, uh, and the fellowship of his suffering. So here's Paul, he's in prison, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, but he says, I'm in the fellowship of his sufferings right now, and I'm okay with that because I've experienced him, and because I've experienced him, I don't really care. Because right now I'm in prison, and he's here with me because he's my experience, not somebody I read about like Abraham Lincoln, not being, and not being conformed, to, or I'm being conformed to his death. The idea is that, that um, I've given up everything because of him, and it's okay because I've experienced him I know him, Gnosko. So there on your outline, uh, knowing Gnosko, knowing Jesus in that way changes my want-tos. Changes my want-tos. There's something about actually experiencing him that changes what I want to do, what I want to do. So the question then is, what is the test that I can ask myself, or is there a test that will help me to clarify if what Paul is saying is true, that I know him in the sense, like I know Abraham Lincoln, I know about him, I've read some things, I feel warmly towards him, or I've experienced him, and I know him through that personal experience, that relationship. Well, John would say it like this there in your outline. He says, we know and have come to know, gnosko, by experience him, if we obey his commands. But the man who says, I know, gnosko him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Uh, Another way he says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share 
in his glory. There's something about when we know Jesus, he changes our want to's that we say, I want to do what you say. When somebody has not had that encounter, they view Jesus like Abraham Lincoln. I know about him, feel warmly towards him, but not as my Lord. I'm still in charge. It reveals something. The last verse, he says, we're children, then we're also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, or his children, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. There's something about knowing him, becoming his child, that all of a sudden we say, I, I don't care what I have, what he leads me through, what difficulty I face, what he calls me to do, whatever it is. Uh, I'm with him because I'm his and I've experienced him. So for each of us, what's important is for us to evaluate and say, do I know him like I know Abraham Lincoln or have I experienced him? And because I've experienced him, my want-tos have changed. For Paul, he had no problem saying, Jesus, my Lord, Jesus was going to be in charge, which is very different than much of church culture. Uh, With that, I'm going to stop right there. Did you find that interesting? And it's very important that we evaluate because knowing Jesus like we know Abraham Lincoln is very different than knowing Jesus Gnosko in an experiential way that changes everything on the inside. So as we close today, if you evaluate and you say, I, I want to know him, there's, it's just simply saying, Jesus, I want to know you for who you are. Come into my life. Take away my sins. Forgive me. I want to know you personally. And when you experience him, what you're going to notice, the want-tos are going to change. And all of a sudden, following him is not such a burden. It becomes a blessing, even in some difficult times. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. So much in this, Lord. So much in this passage. And we could only look at a, a few things But Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, we would leave here today knowing that we know, gnosko you experientially, the real you, in a way that has changed us to where we gladly put you in the place of my Lord, where you are in charge. And Father, if there are any who are here today who are not in that place, we just look to you and say, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. I want to follow you. I want to know you. Come in and change me. And he promises that if you invite him in, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and everything begins to change. It's a new walk. It's a new birth. It's a whole new life. Father, keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.